Hello, I'm Eamon. I'm Conrad. And I'm Luke. And we are Mega, Mega City, City Film Club. Club. And the Film Club has returned. And this time we have a guest uh, coming back from episode 227, Luke Aldred. Welcome to the, to the Film Club, Luke. Thank you. It's great. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. Well, before we get on to the films, we'll just say that we are achieving a podcast first for the book club and film club in that we are tri-continental because in Los Angeles, it's sometime in the afternoon. Yeah, early afternoon here. <laughs> it's late at night here in the UK, but meanwhile in Melbourne, it's already tomorrow. Is that right, Luke? It is, yeah. I'm, I'm way ahead in the future. Four minutes past eight on a Sunday morning. Terrible. So, a what a life. Yeah. Hookup. One of the interesting things that's happened with the film club that Conrad and I have sort of like realised is that people listening have started suggesting to us films that have a connection to 2000 AD and other British comics. Uh, Luke, you came up with the suggestions for this uh, episode. Tell us what was the, the film and a little bit about why you chose it. Okay, well, um, Robocop is my choice for this morning's uh, discussion, evening's, afternoon's discussion. Um, it Obviously, it does what it says on the tin. It is a film about a robot cop. It is pure sort of um, an 80s classic, um, back when all those muscular sci-fi films just had one-word titles, Terminator, Predator, Robocop, Aliens, Commando, you name it. Um, and, yeah, look, it's clear... You know, with with a, 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 a an almost emotionless um, machine dispensing justice just with his lower jaw, effectively, um, the connections to to uh, two thousand AD and, and Judge Red I thought were fairly clear. And just before I ask Conrad, when did you first see the film, Luke? I am reasonably sure I did see it at the cinema. Um, Eighty seven release, so that would put me at seventeen. So I could have uh, slipped under the you know the radar, the the solid hole. Uh, cinema, because I believe it was an 18. I think I saw the posters first, that great image of, 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 of the character stepping out of the police car just with his one leg on the ground and he's holding the door and he's looking straight at the, you know, towards the audience and it's all bathed in neon blue and red. You know, it's a beautiful design. Yeah, fantastic stuff. As you say, 1987, uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven, written by Ed Newmeyer and Michael Miner. I'm going to guess that pretty much everybody listening to this has probably seen RoboCop. It's it's almost universal. Conrad, when you've got a, a story about when you first saw it, yeah. Well, you know, RoboCop always has a it has a, a important place in my heart because it's the first um, R-rated movie that I ever saw um, when I was a kid. I saw it at uh, at sleepaway camp, like one of those situations where uh, Jason kills everybody on Friday the Thirteenth. I was uh, nine years old, Ooh. which <laughs> is too young to watch RoboCop. I can't, I can't stress it enough. Um, <laughs> but sure enough, I did, and like so much of the movie, and because of that, so much of the movie, I feel like is like is burned onto my psyche almost. Like, ju- um, you know, to even just to start, just like the um, like the. Ed two oh nine scene in the boardroom and stuff like that is one of those ones that I feel like I is is something I feel like I've been thinking about you know my entire life now <laughs> just sort of like wow like wow amazing you know so Luke, and has really stuck with me you know 
So, Luke, you mentioned it was an 18 in the UK and R-rated in the US. I mean, it really is. It's not for nine-year-olds, is it? I mean, if you see the full version, it's um, there's a lot yeah. of gore, let's say. It's not an you, you won't find it in any parenting manuals for... Uh, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe it would work. Oh, yeah. How to subjugate your child. Um, but for me, I mean, you talk about it being seared onto your conscience, uh, Conrad. There's a great podcast I listened to by the uh, Ewing brothers, Garen and Murray, and they did uh, 10 advent- it's the adventure film podcast, 10 adventure films and 10, and 10 war-, war films. And they talk about how in your early teen years, things that you experience really do adhere themselves to your conscience. You know, they talk about sort of 12, 13. So that, that child, yeah. the early 80s for me, and obviously I was a bit of a late developer, so Robocop in 87 must slip into there. But things that you see in that particular time of your life, they do stay. And that's why the 80s, I was, you know, a teenager through the 80s. So all those, you know, um, direct slimline, you know, films that just go from A to B without any fuss. You know, I'm talking about The Terminator and, you know, Predator. Like I say, those simple high concept films, which just, they do what they say on the tin. <laughs> there's no fuss, there's no fat on these films. Right. You know, they're really super cool. So before I ask you both about the obvious connections with Dread, um, let's just first say, I'm going to guess Robocop is universally sort of, uh, you know, liked even for a nine-year-old Conrad, you know this. Oh this. yeah, I mean, listen, I loved it. For the record, I was—I feel like I was freaked out by it. Also, it's such a weird thing, too. I mean, in that era, there were definitely RoboCop things that were marketed to kids. I mean, like cartoon shows, toys, you know, toys from you know, very and very much sort of. We could have used those. Um, I think we talked. We've talked about like with Hookjaw or something like that. Like sort of a similar like a comic that's about a robot cop that's marketed to kids who who can't see the actual movie you know that sort of thing would have would have been useful at the time i'll say and you know we know because we've we've all been looking a little bit behind the scenes and listening to some podcasts watching the documentaries about the making of robocop we know it was a troubled production and sometimes a troubled production can produce a classic which it seems to have done in this case I think it's really that, like, sort of, man, that, like, late 80s, early 90s Paul Verhoeven, like, just, I feel like, came to Hollywood and made, like, five classic movies and made, like, five, like, sort of, you know, baseline Western culture movies almost, like RoboCop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, um, even something Troopers. like Starship Troopers, even like Showgirls for like, and as, as, a, as like a cult classic, you know, you look at his like sort of, sort of oeuvre in that, in this period and man, it's just like so many things that, 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 that even if they might've been panned at the time have become touchstones. It's really amazing. Probably, probably popular with nine-year-old boys as well. Some of those. Oh my god! Conrad. Listen, come on! I was there. <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> I'm guessing you're a huge fan of this as well, Luke. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I was listening to, uh, you know, and again doing a bit of the research, and apparently he was really keen to get into obviously Hollywood, and he wanted to produce and make the quintessential American action movie. It's funny how lots of continentals and, and foreign, you know, non-English speaking, they might look down their nose at Hollywood and deride Hollywood, but they have this real sort of fascination with it as a, as a, as a machine, as an industry, as a cultural 
you know, produces worldwide cultural icons from Steve McQueen and Gary Cooper and Eastwood and the whole lot. Anyway, and I think he really wanted to get into that, but he didn't quite know how. And and, and the story being that he was he read no his he read the script, saw the first page, threw it away because he just you know because he thought it was rubbish. And it was his wife famously. I don't know if this is a modern myth. His wife picked it up, reread it, and said, "No, you need to listen. To, you need to read this. There's more to it than just." The title, which let's face it, the title does sound like a bargain bin, <laughs> yeah. you know, blockbusters. It's, it's a fairly terrible title. Probably better suiting the sequels, maybe. But, but you know, <laughs> so he, she encouraged, she encouraged him to to go with it, and then he bought his obviously his skills and the satire, the fact that he he wanted to make an American movie, but he also satirized them, you know, up to the hilt with the violence and the, which I'm sure we'll get onto, you know, with all that. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what we're here for, the Judge Dredd stuff. Luke, Mm -hmm. again, listening to the podcast and the documentaries, it's Ed Neumeyer, the writer, who seems to have been the 2000 AD fan um, in the 80s. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realise there was such a a, a strong connection until I actually read on good old Wikipedia that they had this vision for the film and they went to Verhoeven and he wanted to make it darker and more serious um, and they and actually said they actually gave him or they, or they you know brought along some of the 2000 AD Judge Dredd stories to actually illustrate the tone they wanted. So they wanted the violence, the hyper violence, but they wanted that black humor, satirical edge. So there is actually a clear, you know, almost like a smoking gun between Robocop and Judge Dredd because that's exactly the tone they wanted. Which, when you think about it, it is pure Judge Dredd. You know the the especially I guess since it moves you know into the late eighties when it really did start getting you know bloody and body parts flying you know mm-hmm. everywhere. But at the same time, that pitch black um, well not even pitch black humor the sort of the humor that the, almost slapstick but with extreme violence <laughs> a winning combination yeah definitely and. They made an earlier inquiry about the Judge Dredd film rights, which were already owned by Charles Lippincott, I gather. Um, but Conrad, you probably have read the early progs the most recently out of the three of us. Some <laughs> of the lines that Robocop says on screen are yeah. almost directly lifted from those early progs, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the of your RoboCop catchphrases are also Judge Dredd catchphrases, right? That's sort of, you know... Uh, you know, give up or there'll be trouble or whatever, you know, dead or alive, you're coming with me, that kind of stuff. It's very much like, I mean, I don't even know if by the 80s, if Dread even is like, maybe like, I don't know if Dread in the comics is super monosyllabic or super like sort of all that soft spoken actually, but on the covers he definitely is and sort of iconically he is, um, you know, and you can definitely see, and of course, there's sort of frequently allusions within Dread to, you know, talking about him being, you know, inhuman, you know, not have, you know, having lost connection to emotion and and humanity, you know, as early as, you know, very early. And I think it's sort of some of the stuff where, like, especially when they talk about um, some of the early, like, clone stuff with Rico or something like that. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of baked into dread a little bit. 
that you can definitely see that being reflected in 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 RoboCop as well. These sort of similar some 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 similar questions about like I don't know the inhumanity of authority <laughs> or the con- disconnect that those in powers ha- in power have from those they. Um, are supposed to be protecting or um, serving, I guess. I want to say also, um, and especially, it becomes much more explicit in uh, in, in RoboCop too. But like, I see so much of um, of Frank Miller in in RoboCop. You know, even in the first one, I think you compare the start of Dark Knight Returns with the start of RoboCop. You know, both with these sort of rapid fire like. TV commercials, news reports, creating sort of a meet, you know, starting with the media scape and then going into the actual setting of the of the world feels very like very, very close to that as well. Like, I think there's sort of, you know, RoboCop almost to me almost feels kind of like The Matrix or something where it's a movie that's sort of it's taking from a lot of different places. Like it's a it's a it's a gumbo, you know, <laughs> like there's a lot of ingredients from a lot of different sources in there to sort of have it come out the way it, it is. And, mm. you know, I, but, all, that, but that, that's not to discount the role of Dredd in there and 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 his the Wagner Grant um elements in in that go into the character because i think they're definitely there as well you know just even stuff just like you know the the big gun the like um iconic images and stuff so much of like of robocop's moves is him like getting into positions and then for you know he sort of goes from one static position to another that i think is very similar not to how again if you sort of were animating dread it's not what he would be like but how would how dread feels like when you read him in the comics right where sort of you know he's sort of going from one static position to another and I, I guess it's a comic thing generally, of course, but, you know, so much of, of, of RoboCop's move because he's this big, heavy robot guy is him like, you know, one position, you know, comic panel poses almost as he sort of, you know, gets in fights and guns people down, you know. If, if I can add to that, that's just like you talk about his, um, you know, the way RoboCop moves. You know that's how Dread would move with his huge cumbersome right. padding and things. So he is he is basically trapped in the armor. Yeah, you know, it depends just on like, your era of yeah, Dread, I guess, because they're sort of you know you sort of in the eighties you have a more sort of thin lithe Dread, you know, <laughs> as opposed to more modern times where it's much more where, where he's definitely much more sort of encased in those shoulder pads. You know, yeah. But even even the way you know RoboCop moves because. On rewatching, I realised he doesn't. He's an action hero who he doesn't do any running because obviously he can't run. Yep. He can't even get out of a car. I think one of the podcasts said because you know they had to film him already. At, oh, I've just got out of the car. Or, <laughs> oh, I'm in the car. So he doesn't actually run anywhere. He, he he does walk, and like you say, he can just sort of spin around and do the the, the firing. But that's you know the limitations of the suit right. that obviously created that amazing look. But it is just like the comic. Um, you know, like you say, you know you. You wouldn't get a live action dread sprinting down and hurling. I know, obviously, Carl Urban did it in the slim down thing uh, uniform, but a someone in a Bolland uniform would not be able to do that kind of acrobatics. Yeah, and wasn't there a sort of reader um, rumor in the early days of the prog that dread was actually could actually be robotic, and and one of the characters, at least a couple of characters in the in the story, suggest that at various points that there's steel between beneath the skin or something like that. Mm. Definitely possible, yeah. I mean, because so much of the character is just sort of this, like, he's just sort of pulled back from feeling and stuff like that, or, you know, 
seem like, oh, like he's the perfect lawman. He must be a robot, you know? <laughs> you could draw parallels with OCP and Justice Department because they both produce, you know, the, 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 throughout both films that we watched, you know, it, it alludes to the fact that Robocop is now produced. Mm-hmm. He's not a person anymore. He has a, he has a product that has been produced by the company to dispense justice, which is just what uh, Justice Department does with the, you know, either clones or young children and just churns out. I know in later in later years, more effort's been made to humanise some of the characters, but that was a theme, wasn't it? Justice yeah. Department is a factory that churns out, yeah, emotionless yeah, well, law dispenses. I mean, I think it's an interesting idea just to think about how uh, Dread vs. RoboCop, like, ha- like the, their worlds have a lot of a lot of similarities, but are sort of in the end sort of two different kinds of dystopias, right? <laughs> like with with um, you know Mega City One being this kind of like ultra fascism, basically, whereas um, whereas Detroit. Oh, old Detroit is this like sort of corporate dystopia. So, you know, everything's been, been privatized and bought out by this soulless corporation that like, doesn't even, you know, <laughs> to quote the big Lebowski, like, you know, at least fascists have an ethos, you know, <laughs> or they, they believe in something. Whereas corporate guy, you know, the corporate just sort of just believes in profit and that's it basically, you know, and, but they're, they're, they're sort of different out fa- faces of the same sort of, you know, terrible future, <laughs> terrible dark future. <laughs> I was just going to say, did you notice in the Robocop 2, the OCP flag was the black letters in a white circle on a red <laughs> flag? Very fascist, <laughs> yeah. you know, a, not too subtle, as again, I'm sure we'll come on to, a not too subtle attempt in the second film. <laughs> So we've mentioned the sort of the character of RoboCop. It's some of the inspiration in the lines, the stance, the uh, and so on. Luke, you you drew attention, of course, to the fact there's a lot of chin acting from Peter Weller. Um, <laughs> what about the look of RoboCop, uh, his armor, and particularly his helmet? And you know, there's a particular image from behind the scenes that we've all seen, isn't there? Yeah. So is that you alluded to that as being a possible crew? Uh, not a joke as such. Was that a serious attempt? Because they could surely they couldn't try and pursue that as a design because that would be copyright. Were they just going for this is the kind yeah. of thing like a? Um, the designs suit. were very late. They were sort of having to try and build the suit and finish the suit, and they were still doing frantic drawings. And Rob Bottin is doing the special effects. There's an image of the sort of upper half, a clay sculpt by the looks of it, Conrad, I'm guessing, mm. of mm-hmm. the upper half of the, the Robocop suit, which appears to be wearing Dredd's helmet, basically. Right. And as you say, they probably would never have got away with it. But Yeah. I mean, if we can just talk about that suit, because apparently uh, you've probably heard all the same things that, you know, uh, Peter Weller, I can say saying Paul Weller, but he's the lead singer of the jam. Peter Weller, he... Um, you know, very serious actor. He trained with a with a movement artist for I can't remember his months and months to to perfect a very you know um, smooth moving robotic you know way of performing. And then apparently, when like you say the suit arrived late, the first time they put him into it, which took hours, he nearly freaked out because he couldn't move. Mm. He was literally, how am I supposed to do all this acting? And I can't, you know. And he and he and he, you know, nearly lost it. And then they got the mime. His mime sort of fell aback. And said, well, basically, you just need to lean into that. You need to make your moves mm. the opposite of what we were hoping for and just go for this totally deliberate 
Which is why it's great. I think we all agree the classic Robocop movies when he's walking down a corridor and his head moves first and then his chest follows to go that way mm. and the hips as well. And when he puts, you know, talk about opening scenes when he's walking through the, the police station and they get a, a glance. And first of all, it's just through the frosted glass, but you can hear the thump of his feet on the floor. I love and that. that. It's yeah. just, again, it's one of those iconic. It's like the yellow barrels in Jaws or, you know, the the <laughs> the, the, the T-Rex glass of water shaking in um, Jurassic Park. It's that sort of introduction of, you know, bit by bit and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the shooting gallery, not shooting gallery, but the shooting range yeah. with a cannon firing away at the end. It's a fan- you know, very fantastic introduction of the character who we've only sort of seen as point of view in his sort of like in his construction process. Again, in sort of iconic scenes. But, the, you know, the introduction of the character um, is just wonderfully done. Well, even we've, we've even skipped ahead to poor, old, you know, Peter Weller from, you know, his acting. And he was a great actor at the beginning. You know, he comes in as this slight, fair-headed, you know, he's come from the nice suburbs. They're all saying, what are you doing down here? <laughs> um, you know, he, he's doing the right thing. And then, of course, he lasts on screen for, I don't know, 15 minutes or so before being blown apart in a really harrowing, uh, scene, which is, um, and again, you know, we both researched this, and it talks about how the criminals are just really just laughing their heads off as it when it's happening. So it's that idea of humour, humour and extreme cruelty in the film, humour and extreme violence. They just the, the criminals just think it's hilarious. He's being blown apart, and it's very crucif- the crucifixion scene. I worked so much into this. I didn't realise oh yeah how much the, the crucifixion uh, elements to it as well. But anyway, there we go. Sorry. Um, well. So we've got the inspiration, we've got the, the character, the lines, we've got the jaw, we've got the suit, we've got a behind-the-scenes still that shows a possible dread-type helmet on it, which, of course, didn't happen. And then we've got the city, the future city of Detroit and the dystopia and all the other stuff that comes into this film because there's so much stuff in this film. Um, Luke, you start us off. What did you think about the, the dystopic... Detroit and possibly similarities with Mega City One. Yeah, well, I think they touched on it lightly, which, which is what I appreciated. They didn't go all in for it, um, which again, I think the mistake the second film makes. But it comes to that. So you see the flashes, you know, you see the, you know, uh, some of the crimes, like the classic um, first first patrol montage. There's a convenience store hold up. There's the um, you know obligatory eighties sexual assault which you know maybe a bit troublesome i don't know but um uh, what's the third one the hostage situation sort of petrol station mm-hmm. the hostage exactly, exactly another classic you know um didn't dirty harry do the same thing i can't remember um a similar sort of so thing. they don't but they, they, they so they don't they don't go overboard showing you this and and as conrad said it's the news items as well so the star wars the malfunctioning laser Star Wars, which happens to wipe out half of, is it Santa Barbara or yeah. Santa Monica? Um, you know, so, so it's little, so they don't need to go overboard in showing you the world in decline. You know, people are still out and about doing their bit, bit, but what it does point out is that the victims in it are, um, if you're the elderly, the elderly couple in the convenience store, running the convenience store, you know, the young uh, woman out on her own at night, the scholarly, bookworm in the petrol station so if you're an intellectual elderly or a woman it's not it's no it's no world for you you know the tough the tough survive you gotta have a big gun and so it's that kind of um you know it doesn't it doesn't doesn't try and shove it into your face there's a little bit of 
you know, dirty streets. But yeah, and and the, and the gang are just again they're a well drawn, well defined criminal gang. Each of them, you know, very, you know, as I said, well defined. I, I got to say, I love the the bad guys in, in this first RoboCop. Uh, like like Kurtwood Smith is as Clarence Boddicker is one of my favorite movie villains of all time. He's so just like raw evil, you know. <laughs> And like, and like, like you talked about earlier with, with the laughter and stuff, how they're sort of doing all this, like doing all this murder and mayhem and just sort of seemingly having a great time while they do it as well. It's like really like chilling and really just creates them as these like, just, just, just pure villains that, you know, you, you really want to see RoboCop get the better of, you know? You know, I, I got to say that the um, actually the a lot of the media stuff, it really reminded me of um, Death Race 2000, which we yes. watched earlier on the on the film club. Very much similar tones here of creating of sort of taking the what was then the present day media and expanding it out to like the nth degree to create this sort of dark future like oh my like what what are these people watching like how is this like you know it makes you you know it's 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 one of the great things i think of science fiction does generally which sort of makes you think about what's going on in the present based on what sort of could be happening in the future and stuff like that yeah i i honestly i really something i i really like about the future of Detroit and RoboCop is uh, is just that it it really feels like a not too distant future, I guess. Like it really feels like you know, a 1997. If the movie's in 1986 or 1987, you know, it's not like well, it's way in the future, so all bets are off. You know, it just feels like well, things keep rolling forward. You know, there's like one like fancy sci-fi car. You know. <laughs> But that's kind of it. Like there's, it's like, like, oh, everybody's got sci-fi cars or something or like, you know, even the, uh, the fanciest corporate guys are still clear. You know, they're still basically Gordon Gecko, Wall Street kind of like um, executive guys, you know, in a way that's very sort of recognizable for in the time and in that end of that era, you know? And so I think that that really sort of it keeps the film a little bit grounded and then makes the fantastical elements of RoboCop then feel like really interesting. because It's not sort of like, why, why aren't they doing this before? It's like, oh, no, this is like this sort of cut, like cutting edge thing. And because it's sort of new, it also I think it also explains sort of some of the like why he's so like big and clunky and stuff like that. You know, it's sort of how we do it in the future, like like how how we would do it now, you know, or you know, now of <laughs> 30 years ago. Um, like, yeah, it just creates this. um really interesting setting that feels real or like realistic, I guess it's not so over the top that it's just sort of like, Oh yeah, no, it's just sort of full crime town. It's like, Oh, it's just sort of like, it's the future. Like it's a couple years in the future and things have not gotten better in any way. And that's just sort of it, you know, I believe, didn't they? I think one of the early drafts that they intended, it intended to be a lot further in the future. And then they bought it back. I'd read that somewhere, which is almost like a, the flip side to the Judge Dredd when, was it Pat Mills or, you know, saw the Carlos's futuristic cityscape in the background and realised, oh, no, we're going to set Dredd, Judge Dredd a lot further in the, in the future. Mm-hmm. So they almost did the reverse. 
and it works because as, as Conrad said, a lot of the filming was just on location, you know, yeah. normal streets, um, you know, normal sort of office blocks. They had, apparently they had very little, it was only a 10, 10, 12 million budget. So most of it was done on location, you know, including the classic eighties factory, you know, abandoned steel works or whatever, you know, Absolutely. Love a love an abandoned factory shootout. It's really, you know, really the best place to sort of fight things out. A lot of ladders and grates and girders. You know, this is this is where you wanna this is where you wanna show down, you know. <laughs> and the people of Detroit are either out on the streets rioting and looting, or it would appear that they're inside like Mega City One citizens watching the endless corporate media. As you've said, Conrad, there's the news mm-hmm. story you know, two presidents have been wiped out by a Star Wars laser platform, but then immediately the news moves on to the next story. There's the adverts for the various board games, Meltdown and so on. And then, of course, we have to mention quickly the Benny Hill-inspired comedy show that gives the film another one of its catchphrases. I will buy that for a dollar. Absolutely. <laughs> I, re- I really tried to pay attention to that show this time and just try to be like, well, what is it vaguely? Because obviously it has been, you know, the sort of like, here's this sort of, you know, schlub guy who is somehow, you know, getting pied in the face by by uh, scantily clad ladies all the time. It seems like it's always his birthday as well. Like... <laughs> We see at least three episodes where the situation is so like women are given are being given or are, are being given as gifts or are giving him gifts for his birthday, and you know when hilarity ensues, and it's like okay, I guess that's just the setup for every episode. Fair enough, <laughs> but it does feel like yeah, I mean almost um like idiocracy levels or something like that. This idea that like you know. The, you know, we've, they've reached a point where just the meat is just the lowest possible common denominator, you know, like, so then, and, and that's just what sort of we have in the background to kind of keep the, keep the masses pacified during their days and stuff like that. But I guess it's, it, it also serves to, I was just saying it serves to punctuate the violence and the fact that you do have these huge scenes of ultra violence and then you have got that inane comedy or the adverts or whatever. Again, talking about the the, the violence, the the, uh, the the poor guy in the um, the boardroom scene with Ed Two Hundred Nine when he gets uh, you know first introduced. I think they, they actually, I think they said the actor you know was feeling physically you know sick because of all the squibs, all the little uh, <laughs> explosives that set off the squibs. Well, like the you know it's like being punched in the stomach, right? And I think it, it, it filmed for about three days or something, and he took it. And he does go to the extreme, which again underlines what a cruel sadistic societies that he's, the guy's not just shot once the little guns keep going and going and going until they're empty um yeah blowing my nine-year-old mind you know, you know? <laughs> just couldn't believe it which apparently <laughs> apparently the script writer had a fantasy when he worked in corporate of, of people coming in shooting <laughs> everyone in the meetings so that's where he, which again is you know you think <laughs> with these days of mass workplace violence is quite um grim to put it uh, yes. mildly um but then you've got that which introduces Ed 209 as a sadistic killing machine and then for the rest of the film he's comic relief mm-hmm. <laughs> you know he can't go downstairs and he's got a little squeaky voice when he falls over and then his legs there's just a pair of legs at the end so he go, he goes from yeah faceless killer to like i said comic relief yeah. it's quite quite and unusual. stop motion animation by uh, king of the stop motion Phil Tibbet uh for Ed 209 who as you say when Ed 209 shoots somebody 
really shoots somebody. <laughs> Conrad, you hinted that this was a different dystopia to Mega City One. What do you see yeah. as the differences? I mean, I mean, like like I said, it's just that I think that you know, Mega City One is you know is a is ruled by, by by the justice department by this sort of like you know fascist government i guess um you know and they're sort of honestly i think sometimes the justice department's motivations can be a little opaque sometimes because they sort of there's discussion about like because they sort of talk about like freedom they talk about like sort of protecting the citizens and stuff like that there's sort of especially in the early or apparently in the early days, sort of heavy talk about what's owed to the citizens of Mega City One versus sort of who controls them and stuff. The, the letter to Dread story, which is very much like sort of Dread thinking about like, are we the citizens jailers or are we there to protect them? Also sort of a, the schism in Mega City One between like uh uh, uh, Judd who wants to just sort of genetically engineer the people to be sort of mindless sheep who don't cause trouble but is sort of uh, exiled because of that belief and stuff like that you know it's a like Mega City One's such a is is yeah is this weird also Mega City One's a like a post need dystopia as well if you think about it like sort of every you know unemployment's 95% but you know, it seems like pretty much everybody has food and has like a, ha, has housing and food, even if it's just sort of like months and the worst apartment in a building named after a soap opera actress from a hundred years ago. You know, and like if you if you've lost that, it's because it's either been sort of de- destroyed by someone's fad or like um, you know you've there's some sort of other, you know, some something else has happened. You've, maybe you've gotten an addiction or something else is sort of, you know, you've chased a get-rich-quick scheme or something that sort of left left you destitute. But there seems like there's a certain level of care that the, justice, that the government of the city seems to be providing, I guess. But in return for that, you're sort of stomped under the boot of the, you know, of, of the judges and, thing, and, and, and all that. Whereas... Old Detroit in RoboCop is very much this sort of capitalistic dystopia. There's the you know a company that owns everything, um, sort of mon- monopolizes all industries, and then sort of takes things over and then drives people out. You know the um, so much of of like hinted at in RoboCop one, and then be sort of becoming a deal in RoboCop two is this idea that they want to build this giant, you know, new, you know, Delta City, right? Which sort of Mega City one esque, actually, like futuristic metropolis. And the idea is that that to get there, they're going to you know, buy the cops and then not pay them. So the cops go on strike, which then sort of torpedoes the city, the city's finances or something like that. Like, and so much of it is, you know, executives and vice presidents jousting with each other and, you know, scoring points and doing all that kind of thing. You know, the idea that one of the, you know, in the, in, in, in RoboCop, one of the biggest, like, interpersonal moments between good guys and bad guys is in the corporate washroom, you know? Um, And the big bad guy is sort yeah, is this sort of, 
evil president who ha- is sort of tr- is more trying to make a buck than anything else. The idea that you know, as we talked about the the Ed two oh nine is sort of. You know, who gives a damn if it worked? You know, I had a deal with the government to sell spare parts for 25 years, you idiot, that kind of thing. It's just, it's a different, it's a different motivation than the higher ups in, you know, than the Council of Five and uh, in, in Mega City One have, right? They're sort of, they have different goals and different things, even though it does, you know, in the end, it does obviously play out kind of similarly with sort of a pacified population. And you know, soul super cops dispensing dispensing questionable justice. Like how how they get there is is very different. I think it's a there's that obviously it's um, Reaganomics in the U.S. in the '80s, and then you know Thatcher policies, you know trickle down economics and all that sort of stuff. But as you're saying, Conrad, their solution seems to be like Mega City One with the old old town, just cement over it and build a new one on top. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, literally in, in Mega City One, they don't bother, they don't bother knocking down the old one. No, not, not, <laughs> even, just, not even the skyscrapers; they're still know. down there. You know, <laughs> I know. I've often wondered about the physics of that and how did they, the engineering and how they managed it. But there we go; <laughs> it's sci-fi. So, Luke, before I take us on to RoboCop Two, any other sort of closing thoughts about the first film and similarities with Dread and Mega City One? Oh, I've got notes and notes of thoughts, but I, I <laughs> we obviously haven't got time. Um, I, th- I think it's. I mean, it's the. Vi- I guess it comes down to the comic violence at the end of the day, and that's that's a sort of clear, um, you know, sort of uh, through line or, or you know shared DNA. That sort of humour in extreme violence, which again coming back to Verhoeven and his desire to create this, his version of an American action film. He just turned up the violence and and took it one step further. You know, the the shootings don't just last a couple of seconds. They're like you know, bang, 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 bang. Mm-hmm. You know. To the point, almost like in a in a two thousand AD comic, that the, the extreme violence, you know, um, and the dark satire uh, yeah. of it all. But I mean, he yeah, but he underscores it with the the most interesting thing, which again, I I didn't realize until sort of rewatching it with with some of these thoughts in my mind about how the most you know the interesting part is the first sort of two thirds. And it does kind of turn into a generic action film when he, conf- which it, which it has to. I know it has to pay off that way. But when he confronts uh, Dick Jones in the, and, and then has the, the the confrontation with Ed Two Hundred Nine, then it becomes a very sort of the generic, you know, shootout shootout in the in the refinery. But the, so all the interesting stuff is, is before that, and the scene where you know when they're trying to, <laughs> it turns out poor old um, Murphy's still alive after all that shooting, and he's in the helicopter. And you just see his eyes and it's all flashing. And then, you know, eventually the screen goes black. And I, I read actually, it's only black for about two or three seconds in, in, in the cinematic version. But Verhoeven wanted the screen to go black for about 20 seconds. He wanted people to sit in the cinema and just think, is that it? Is that, and, and just mm. because that's, the, that's life and death, isn't it? He's dead. And then he comes back and you get those incredible little scenes through his point of view and there's the Christmas party or the New Year's Eve party with the party hats and just daft things like that which again is quite a 2000 AD Judge Dredd thing isn't it that of yeah. you know you've got this high tech lab but they're having a you know, New Year's Eve party so it's that sort of juxtaposition I'll mention um, oh sorry okay. go ahead please Luke Oh, the, the last the, the one last thing which is the the walking on water scene as well at the end we've already talked about his possible crucifixion and then right at the end here he is he's, he's walking on water anyway that's all i'm going to say about that i want to mention also um 
there's a uh, I, th- I think I, th- I think it's the first Simon Bisley um, ABC Warriors also has a um, a Hammerstein um, flashback that's very similar to that sort of RoboCop uh, initial like a uh, b- building RoboCop montage as well that sort of that like you know Hammerstein sort of being like in a workshop basically as an engine as a engineer works on him and then um, you know sort of is harassed by another co-worker and that kind of thing like there's you can definitely see those elements and also just that I really love that um, that sequence just because I think it's so interesting the like um, just the having the heads up display and that sort of like you know I don't know futuristic like view of things I feel like um, video games really sort of takes the RoboCop head, the, the RoboCop heads up display and the, and the one from Terminator. And that's like the basis of like 90% of how you play video games in 2023, basically like what the look of, of how you see the world is and stuff like that. There's one other thing that just occurred to me, actually you talk about, like, um, I remember listening to your podcast about Robusters and I wasn't so familiar with the story Robusters, but um, how it's a corporation run by Mr. 10%, mm-hmm. the Mr. Quartz, mm-hmm. is it? Yeah. Um, so he's the corporation and he's sending these robots who are basically the blue collar, you know, the grunts or whatever. So he's sending them to do all these death, um, you know, uh, deadly jobs. And I was thinking, so yeah, so the cor- corporation, corporate versus blue collar, that's a theme that comes out obviously in lots of Pat Mills sort of work. But when you think about the films of the 80s, you know, you had Alien and Aliens where you've got the company mm-hmm. sending out, um, you know, the crew of the Nostromo are just truckers, basically, aren't they? They're long-distance lorry drivers. You've got the grunts in Aliens, the, the soldiers, they're just blue-collar, and it's the company. Um, you know, so, yeah, there's a sort of recurring theme, corporate you know, versus um, the normal working class kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in, in I suppose you'd even go as far as, you know, Terminator 2, it's the, it's the corporate, corporate America that destroys the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so beware, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's time for a quick intermission. Um, Conrad is the official film correspondent of the Mega City Book Club, but we had a note mm-hmm. from the official art correspondent, Pete Wells. Um, hope you're feeling better now, Pete. When, Luke, when we did Sin City, of course, we forgot to mention that Frank Miller actually did a proposed cover for the 10th anniversary issue of the Judge Dredd magazine, um, a cover that was um, infamous, infamously not used, but I think we've all seen it. Uh, yeah. What did you make of that uh, Frank Miller image, Luke? I think it's great, to be honest. You can't you can't be too precious with something like Judge Dread, which is you know it's, it's extreme. It's turned up to eleven on all angles. So you know, I know the head and the arm went all different places, and the um, the, the helmet was designed differently. He basically looks like he's beating up a small child because he's about five times bigger than this tiny little figure, I think it is. And has he got like axes and things hanging out of his pads and whatnot? But it did remind me of some of those when Mick McMahon started doing some of the Titan um, covers. And there's, a, and there's a great one that I've always loved when he's fighting Mean Machine Angel. I don't know if you know the image. And they're all, you've got the, you know, it's set within an A4 frame of the, of the cover but you've got them falling over each other, you know, legs going this way, you know, lots of strange perspectives and it just crams, it just fills up the frame with the bodies. And, and I think that 
that does the same thing. The Frank Miller picture, he just he just taken, he's, you know, he's taken the figure of dread and he's just expanded him in all different ways to to, to fill up the page. You've got to wonder how seriously he took it <laughs> a little bit. He was, I don't know, you know, maybe he didn't know so much about the character and wasn't that interested in doing something to that would you know please the fans. It, it, it's, he's obviously taking it his own way. But I liked it. Conrad, there's a very big boot in this image. Of yeah, I was going to say, that boot, though. <laughs> what are those? You know, we, they say on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fine. It, it, or it, It's all right. I don't know. It doesn't... I don't think it's it's Frank Miller's best work, you know, and doesn't... And, like, I don't know. It, it, yeah. It doesn't sort of show the things about dread that I th- if someone was if someone like really knows dread would would want to show I guess if I'm like a, the 2000 AD editor and I'm bringing in a big name to do a dread pinup or a dread cover basically I think about what I want what, what I want that artist's take on I guess. And to me, the big two are the helmet and the eagle, basically. And so the fact that, you know, you can't see the eagle at all makes me feel like makes me feel like this was sort of it's just it's not getting the opportunity that you it's it's not taking the opportunity that's there just because I feel like, you know, that eagle is so hard, like having done whatever, some Drocktober challenges and stuff like that. Man, that eagle is challenging. I don't know what Carlos Escara was thinking, guys. It's a lot. But, um, you know, like Johnny Alpha, I guess, where it's like this character design was not designed, seemingly not designed for a weekly comic, despite it definitely being so. But <laughs> Like, you know, I'm bummed it's not that Miller has dread with a very five, you know, not on, like I just has some off model elements, got a five o'clock shadow dread, which dread rarely has like the proportions are, are weird, which I'm not super against that. I mean, I, I love Mick McMahon, um, even, you know, and his later stuff sort of into the, into, into the nineties and to the present day, honestly, where he's very much is sort of has very specific idea or has very non-standard ideas about perspective and the size and you know the sizing of dreads parts and stuff he always drew you know even in the early days he drew, drew a very big booted dread which i always liked and stuff but these are these boots are too big it's sort of in the and i wish i could see like and they they take up my my vision of it sadly enough i wish it wasn't so you look at, um, I think, Bill um, Sinkovitz, I can pronounce it right, when the covers that he did for the Titan dress, they, they, maybe they were hoping they'd get something like that because I've always loved, yeah. I think there's um, the Super Surf, uh, the Chopper story that um, Bill Sinkovitz did the cover for for the Titan volume. That was great. That was, you know, it was, it was pure... Um, yeah, it just worked. It was great. So maybe they're hoping they'd get some something along those sort of lines of quality, but uh, not to be. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll move on. The reason we we mentioned Frank Miller was because, of course, Frank Miller gets co-writing credits on both Robocop 2 and Robocop 3. (laughs) So, Robocop 2, 1990, Paul Verhoeven has moved on to all those other classics you mentioned, Conrad. Irving Kirshner takes over as director. Waylon Green and Frank Miller are the writers. We get some of the cast uh, returning, including, of course, Peter Weller, does his second outing as RoboCop himself. Um, 
I thought I'd seen this film, but I remembered nothing about it on watching it this time. There is a plot about another fictional drug that's sweeping Detroit. There's the stuff about Delta City. And then, of course, there's the search for the literal uh, from the title Robocop 2, that they are trying to reproduce Robocop. Um, Luke, you start us off. What did you make of this one? Um, well, I went to see it at the cinema when it came out wow. with high, high hopes, and you know, I was dis- <laughs> I was disappointed. It, I mean, look, it lacks it lacks the sort of the style and the finesse. Like I was saying before, the original just showed what you needed to see of you know society in decline. Um, you know, gangs. They didn't overdo the gangs. They had the main four members, which have said who are very you know charismatic. A shout out to Emil, the toxic waste uh, victim. We oh didn't mention God. the first yeah, one. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> but the rest, of the, the rest of the baddies in um, RoboCop Two, they're generic. You know, stick them in a, a jean, give them a studded. I think one character I saw with a studded black leather glove. I just thought that kind of says it all. That's what they think eighties gang members are all about. The, you know, the guy, the, the the bad guy, Kane. I, I don't like it when they just give people one one word. You know, names. And they sort of alluded to the fact that Nuke was a he was a cult as well because that's another sort of big trope of eighties nineties. Oh, let's make him a cult leader. But then there was nothing more said about it apart from the fact he wore a long coat and looked a little bit, you know, yeah, and sort of came out talks, some sort of had some kind of like hippie kind yeah. of talks about like yeah, drug based yeah. utopias or Mentioned something that. like that. Yeah, yeah. But they just they just turned up all the elements from the first one that they thought they needed to you know, up to, well, past 11, because the, the first one had them up to 11. They went past off the dial. But it just lacked that kind of style. And I noticed as well, it didn't have the classic music, which we haven't talked about, the the theme. Basil Polidori, is that his name? Who did the theme to Conan and, you know, and apparently Paul Verhoeven got him to do the theme before he even made the film. So he wanted this anthemic thing and that was just missing from the second one. I thought that was a very strange choice to not use the wonderful music. Maybe they couldn't for some reason. I, I don't know. And the plot was just too convoluted, you know. Rehab, like I said, elements from the, the plot elements from the first one, but just overcomplicated things. And even the design of the second robot was, you know, I'm not sure what they're aiming for. Uh, sort of a huge, big body and an anvil head, and then these little crab-like legs. I'm not sure how it would have stayed <laughs> stayed up. Um, I noticed Frank Miller actually appeared in it as the chemist in the in the truck. Mm. Did you notice that? Mm. Um, didn't last very long, so yeah, that's my that's generally my um, Conrad. View. Did you see this one at Sleepaway Camp? No, no, I didn't see this one too much later. Although I thought it was very funny in watching these two because I think I don't know when I saw Robocop, I, I must have seen it on VHS or something or on, on a video, but in my mind, a lot of the ads from RoboCop 2 I thought were in RoboCop 1 like to the point where I was literally like I like literally like wait like did they do these get cut out or something like that but the like um like the you know sunscreen 2000 or whatever or the um Magnavolt like the car security system that just sort of electrocutes the dude in your car just drop, dump them out, and drive off or something. Those one, those really stuck with me. I was sort of, and I, I was surprised. I ended up being surprised that they weren't in the uh, in, in in the original Dread or or uh, the original RoboCop. One of these guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, RoboCop two. 
it's not uh, not great like <laughs> kind of resets the character like sort of doesn't really know who they're against i guess because they're sort of there is like sort of you know ooh these corporate masters and stuff but like you know there's also like the city which is super corrupt there's also a bunch of like you know just some random swings at a namby pamby liberals and things like that as well when they like sort of there's a section where where they go sort of go to the community to get like you know basically to mess up robocops they get a bunch of like new suggestions for directives and they're like you know what if he spread an environmental message or try to talk things out or something like that it's like all right guys like you know you don't even you don't even know who you're angry at at this point you know (laughs) and then yeah i just thought yeah it was very good I was just going to say the very dread touches where he's sort of the guy's smoking a cigarette and he, he shoots the bullet holes around his head to say, oh, no smoking creep or whatever. So it's <laughs> very, again, very uh, over the top. Definitely. Sorry. Carry on. And then, like, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of, like, let's make up a drug sort of for the movie, I guess. Mm. Like, I'm not because it just seems, I don't know, like it's sort of it, it it makes RoboCop one feel a bit realer that they're just sort of doing, you know, that there's just sort of a cocaine factory or something like that. And that's just sort of the thing. But by the way, nine year old me, when they talked about Coke, thought they were literally talking about Coca-Cola. I can't I can't stress enough <laughs> that I was not ready. But um, <laughs> but like, you know, and like you're probably really excited. I was like, yeah, Coke listen, comes in a white powder. That's great. Come on. But like, you know, although it is like it is, I will say that that it is funny and over the top. I love that they like twice in the movie um, an old an old dude authority figure holds up some nuke to try to make a point and a nuke addict tries to kill them for does kill them for it. Basically, like I, I think that's kind of ridiculous, but I, I agree that they just didn't. They just didn't capture the stuff that was in in the first one. You know, the it, like Luke. Luke, you talked about the gang, and I really agree that even though they weren't like over the top characters or anything like that, like the Boddicker gang in the first RoboCop, sort of. You know, you got a sense that they like you know were like you got a sense that they were friends almost, but like then they're sort of doing crimes and being ridiculous. Whereas like the baddie, all the baddies in robocop 2 everyone's really trying to like you know like oh i'm a rockabilly guy look at my like you know red shirts and stuff Mm. you know like oh we got a kid that you're freaked out by that you know (laughs) that sort of thing yeah i'm not sure why that child was involved Uh, again it it, it almost seems like a a frank miller shock tactic really feel yeah i think it's really there for shock value and that sort like that that sort of part of the era i'm thinking of like also like last action hero or something like that where there's sort of a point in the 90s sort of again sort sort of a a pre-columbine or pre like big like lots of school shootings era where like oh we'll we'll give a kid a gun and that'll like you know freak out the squares Mm -hmm. sort of thing that shows up a fair a moderate amount in movies yeah, maybe because I was watching RoboCop two, looking for parallels with Dread and two thousand AD, I thought the search for Robo- the literal RoboCop two, was a, a bit like the Mechanismo ongoing storyline, where they try to introduce mm. a variety of different robots, and none of them really seem to work properly. We get this idea that they need 
Murphy's sort of consciousness or moral centre to actually make them work. So I suppose there's a sort of mechanismo thing there, possibly. Well, I feel like mechanismo is very much playing off. I mean, I feel like mechanismo draws so much from these robocop movies just in terms of of some of the tropes of like well what would a robot you know what are the downfalls of a robot cop and how it doesn't work you know i i i I really vividly remember a story from the first mechanismo storyline where like where, where one of the mechanism where one of the robo judges is like sort of taking out perps and stuff and then suddenly a kid with a squirt gun shows up and like you know points it at mechanismo and everybody like gasps and we think we're you know you think you're like seconds away from that opening ed 209 you know scene in the boardroom and stuff but instead the robot just kind of like pats the like cute kid or something like that like sort of playing with your expectations like no these robots are actually like could be all right you know and these sort of uh I think it's interesting that sort of so much of these movies are building up that sort of anti-robot sentiment that Dread has that makes him so unwilling to accept the mechanisms. I don't know. You mentioned earlier, Luke, all those classic 80s single word action hero films, Predator, Terminator, Aliens, Commando. I'm struck by a certain irony that um, the only one that sort of has shown up regularly in advertisements on TV, um, a strange source of being used by corporations, is Robocop, who <laughs> over here sells, sells mm. home insurance and I think has sold KFC chicken in uh, America, Conrad. Definitely possible. <laughs> also appeared on a couple, on like at least one episode of a professional wrestling, like as actual RoboCop <laughs> fighting these wrestlers and stuff like that, you know. But the actual, um, I mean, it, it, it's one of those phrases that's become culturally, you know, um, entered the cultural lexicon or whatever. I know you had Robo things, but, you know, we had Robo Hunter in the, in the, in the, in the comic before, um, before the film. But it's like Watergate, Mm-hmm. It's like a prefix that you stick on something and it's become a, a, a known thing. You know, in Australia here, we had a, a scandal still ongoing called Robo Debt, where some people in the right wing uh, government of the time thought it'd be a good idea to um, automize or automate um, welfare checks on people and they'd send out um, automated phone calls and automated letters accusing people of cheating the welfare state. And obviously when you do that to people that are vulnerable anyway, you know, there was a glitch in the system. Lots of innocent people got caught up in it. And, you know, some people, you know, took, took their lives. So it's, it's, it, and, it, and it's been, it was coined robo-debt. Mm-hmm. And it's an ongoing political thing. So it's one of these things that, it, you know, it, it has achieved cultural resonance, you know, put it that way. Yep. Like I say, like Watergate, stick gate at the end of a scandal, party gate. Or that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, it is definitely a, a cultural uh, touch yeah. touchstone. But um, I will. I, I know we're coming slightly to the end, but one quote that I really sort of thought about that I heard is that it was a film. Robo RoboCop is a film that appeals to the smartest guy in the room and the dumbest guy in the room, which is I think is what we've talked about. Or girl, sorry, that we talked about this morning is that it's, it operates on those different levels of pure action flick. And then there's a lot of subtext there that, you know, which people have recognized and discussed over time. Mm-hmm. Like Dread himself. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, one, I think RoboCop gets licensed a lot because he's the sci-fi character that really doesn't require a lot of special effects, you know? Like, in the end, it's sort of chin acting in a suit, so it doesn't really, like, you know, it's not... You know, Peter Weller's great, but it's not like, I mean, he's not even in the third movie, you know, <laughs> this sort of, they do voice processing on him and stuff. So it's very much easy to disassociate him from the character and stuff and then sort of have a RoboCop out there. I think they were willing, they, they seem very willing to spend the license as well. I mean, after RoboCop 3, there's sort of a, you know, TV series from Canada and stuff like that. But I want to get, like going back for what I was talking about in the start with uh, Paul Verhoeven. And I feel like that's sort of his specialty with American movies, you know, like that sort of because RoboCop, like Total Recall, like Starship Troopers, for instance, are these movies where you can enjoy them baseline. But there's also, you know, heavier philosophical things in there, you know, you know, I think, you know, not here, probably, but I'm sure a philosophy pod, you know, you can have a philosophical discussion about the nature of life and identity with RoboCop, you know, like, hey, if, you know, Alex Murphy dies and is brought back or, you know, his body is brought back with some of his memories, is he alive again? Like, what does that mean? You know, what is that, the capability of that? You know, what does it mean when, you know, even just to, you know, give some <laughs> give something to RoboCop too. What does it mean when your when someone's brain is actually like a computer with a command line, you know, and you can just type things in and they'll think that, uh, you know, and then what does it also mean for them to have a will beneath that programming and stuff? Uh, these are, you know, it, it, it's interesting stuff to think about and, and deeper than mm. just sort of robot shoots guy. You know, I think Luke, what, what you've been talking about a little bit with sort of the, some of the religious allegory and symbolism in the first RoboCop as well are very, you know, it's stabbed by a spear towards the end. I'm just saying, you know, mm, <laughs> think oh, about it. I Come on. Yeah, I <laughs> you know, like there are things that, you know, aren't maybe not super duper in your face, but we're thinking about. And like, if you, good for on a on a saturday or sunday to talk about with your friends you get real get real heady about robocop that's the great that's a great time you know like what, what do you think wow wow you know like that's deep buddy yeah i know come on you know and then some days you just kind of want to see a dude get turned into a puddle of toxic waste <laughs> And laugh that there's a robot that's got a little yeah. conveyor belt grabby arm thing that it takes drugs with. You know, like these are both acceptable things. You know, they, they, they could have they could have really had a, a, a cuss splat kind of sound effect with poor old Emil's um, thing. It turn, it just, turns into, into a liquid record. when the car hits him. Oh my yeah. god, it's amazing. <laughs> I noticed in the second one they even had some sort of metallic. Doing when you know Robocop bounced yeah. off various pillars, I mean, it was like a almost like a comedy when metal, Robocop and, uh, and Robot yeah. and, and and a robot cane got the side of the building. There's a literal, like you know, ball, falling bomb whistle sound as they go and stuff. It gets it gets yeah. a little silly and also does have yeah. a you know, my favorite thing the uh, the the suicide montage of the Robocop 2s and stuff, <laughs> you know, Robocop 2 and yeah. Groundhog Day, the only mo- the movies with comedic suicide. <laughs> 
But even getting back to, I mean, I thought uh, almost like uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing when it turns out that Swamp Thing isn't the, the mm. human character. It's the swamp that's assumed his consciousness, yeah. if I'm right. It's been a while since I've read it. It's, you know, there's those sort of questions backward and forwards about, you know, Murphy. Is he just like this kind of robot with, you know, with a few memories wearing a face? You know, that if they'd have, I mean, they, 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 they did, I guess, both films, went, you know, went backwards and forwards with that mm-hmm. idea a few times. And then famously, the, 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 the final film, the first film, sorry, the final words are when, you know, the old man just asks his name, what's your yeah. name, son? And he just says, Murphy. And what is great, it transitions from, he just says that one word, Murphy, to Robocop comes on the screen. So it's like, you know, flicks backwards mm. and forwards. And, and, and that's just it. The bang, and again, again, the music starts and it's, and it's the end credits. Um, all told, and I've got to come back to this, all told in a very lean one hour, 40 minutes, I think it was. Absolutely. You know, you don't get that much these days. So the sequel and the other sequels and the remake are really not that great. But the original is endlessly uh, fascinating and discussable. As you say, it all gets brilliantly done in a nice hundred minutes. That's what you want. It's got everything you want from a... a uh, an action movie from the 80s. And, of course, it's got all these parallels with Judge Dredd and Mega City One, which we've been talking about. Great stuff. Thank you for picking it, Luke. No worries. Thank you for having me on. I'm sure I'll look through my notes and I'll have missed heaps, but I appreciate the uh, chance to indulge. Well, as you say, there's so much in the original film. Sadly, not repeated in any of the other ones, but uh, the original one has mm. got so much in it that we haven't been able to get to. Um, great stuff. I should say... Uh, Conrad knows already we've already had some more listener suggestions there will be some more mega city film clubs we've got quite a number of films to watch in the next in the couple of months uh Conrad yeah absolutely well you know since the since the strikes have 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 slowed down feature films we got to fill the fill the gap with um these these classics I love it honestly it is sort of you know there's this man Ah, the the 80s is so nice in terms of just we're going to have some dumb action movies and they're sort of, you know, we're going to explode. And if there's some social commentary in there as well, that's awesome. You know, whatever. Think about it, you know. (laughs) So uh, let's just do the links and where people can find you on the Internet. Conrad, just remind us, Space Spinner. Space Spinner 2000. Come on, guys. Oh, I'm putting episodes out there eventually, I promise. We're getting real close to episode 300. And then we're on to 1995. And we'll be talking about um, the release of the Dread film, which you and I have talked about, Eamon, in uh, real time, I guess, or in the realest time that podcasting can afford. <laughs> Great stuff. And Luke, anything you want to mention? Any links you want to uh, promote here? Um, nothing additional to what I mentioned last time. I'm just a you know day job as a teacher, so that's my uh, bread and bread and butter. But uh, a little bit of a sidebar art project. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Luke Not Dave, and on Facebook, Luke Not Dave. And I'm quite happy to do commissions and um, little stenciled paintings of, of, of things that people like see something they like. Excellent stuff. So um, that's me. You'll find those links in the show notes for this episode again and links to spacebinder2000.com for Conrad. And, uh, you know, as I say, we've got some more suggestions for films with 2000 AD links that we're going to be looking at and talking about in the future. As I've put in our notes, 
if you have a film that is somehow connected to 2000 AD and if no one else can help and if you can find us maybe you can hire the Mega City Film Club I've stolen from <laughs> nice. another great 80s Nicely classic <laughs> easier to find inexpensive to hire yeah <laughs> Until next time on Mega City Film Club, I've been Eamon. I'm Conrad. I'm Luke. And we have been Mega, Mega City, City Film, Film Club. Club.